0: Now, sometimes the view that we have of ourselves uh, doesn't always align with reality. Uh, and we see that in trivial things. Don't we? Just, just listening to a recording of your voice. If you ever had that, you've heard a recording back. Uh, and that is not how you think you sound. Oh, I had a, a friend and um, they left a voicemail. Uh, I think it was at their home. And when they got back and they heard this voicemail, and they were convinced someone else had left a voicemail with a similar message to the one that they'd left. they left. They're like, this is, not, this is not my voice. It took their husband to convince them. You know, yes, that is you. That is how you normally sound. And it can come something of a shock to us when the view that we have of ourselves actually doesn't align with reality. Now we might say, I thought I was a patient person. And then I had kids. I didn't think I was an anxious person. Until that exam. Now I thought I was a loving person. Until that person hurt me. And as we are confronted with the reality. That the difference between what we perceive of ourselves. And the reality. It comes as a shock to us. And it's tempting for us. To just put it to one side, to to forget about it, to try and think that, well, it's just the situation. It's just that person who is making me respond in that way. But those situations can provoke a reaction. The situations don't actually create. They don't produce that reaction. So I'll I'll steal an illustration from uh, biblical counseling, something that we've been doing. So here's my flask. And if I go like that, sorry, right. I made sure you weren't too close to it. Why is there water on the floor? Oh, Nick is straight there. Been reading the articles. I mean, we might say when I do that, there's water on the floor because I hit it. But the question is, why is there water? On? Why is there not fruit juice on the floor? Why is there not... Milkshake. Why is there not smoothie on the floor? And as Nikki said, it's because there's water inside. See, that circumstance, it doesn't produce, it just provokes. And what is inside, what you can't see, suddenly comes out. But it was what was there all along. And those times when we see that, it can come as something of a shock to us. And that view that we had of ourselves, when it doesn't align with reality, we may think we're one thing. And then we look at what's been poured out, what's been spilt. And suddenly we see what was there, but what was hidden all along. And earlier in the chapter uh, that we read this morning, we read of Peter's confident assertion that he is going to, to die with Jesus. When Jesus says to the disciples, look, you're going to abandon me, you're going to be scattered, Peter says, no. I'm ready to die with you. And yet our reading this morning ended with Peter breaking down and weeping bitterly, having denied Jesus in the strongest possible terms. And being confronted with that reality, being confronted with the depravity of our own hearts, as we see at times what gets spilled out, is painful. And many times we try to avoid it, we try to excuse it, we say it's the situation, it's that person. Now just like my friend who is convinced, well that's not my voice, that's got to be someone else. Because of the pain of this thing being exposed, but there's a hope for us. There's a hope, the reason that we can pray that Psalm, Psalm 139. Now test me, see if there is any offensive way in me What leads us to be able to pray that prayer is because of the hope that we find that's seen in this passage. There's a hope for Peter and there is a hope for us as we are confronted with the depravity of our own hearts. You see, as Peter here faces a trial of his own, as his depravity is exposed, at the same time, Jesus is facing a trial. And in his trial, his divinity is revealed. And it is there that we're going to see that our hope is to be found. Uh, So do you have your Bibles open. If you can fight against the nice cool breeze, I won't wish it away. But to uh, Matthew 26. I've just had some sunscreen run into my eye. Uh, There are two headings we're going to look at as we work through this passage, Um, Uh, We're just going to work through it in the way that comes to us. First, divinity revealed from verses 57 through to 68. Uh, And then depravity exposed. And then we're going to put those two together and see the hope that we have in Christ. First off then, divinity uh, revealed. So uh, verse 57, Jesus has been arrested. He's been taken to Caiaphas, the high priest. Peter has been following along. So secretly at a distance, now he now comes in right up to the courtyard of the high priest. Uh, He goes in, he sits down uh, with the guards. He's going to see the outcome. He's going to face a trial of his own very shortly, which we'll come on to. But verse 59, Jesus is there in front of the chief priest. It says the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. Now, the Sanhedrin, it was kind of like a religious parliament at the time, consisted of 70 religious leaders. And we know from Luke's gospel that not necessarily all of the Sanhedrin were gathered. We read of Joseph of Arimathea, is a member of the council, but is not part of this plot to put Jesus to death. So when it says the whole Sanhedrin here, it means all those who were gathered. You needed 23 of those members to have a trial like this. And all of those who were gathered together with the high priest, they've come up with this plot to put Jesus to death. This isn't a fair trial. They've already decided the outcome. They want to put Jesus to death. Now they're looking for false evidence in order that they can bring about their plot. But verse 60, we see they don't find any. They've got false witnesses who are coming forward. But then finally, two come forward, verse 61. They declare, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And now it looks like they've got a charge that is going to stick. Because this claim to destroy the temple and to rebuild it, it could be taken in that culture as an act of treason. Now, much like in our culture, if someone said, I'm going to overthrow parliament and I'm going to establish a new government, Generally, that would be taken as an act of treason. Now, up to 2011, the queen uh, had the authority to dissolve parliament. And in a similar manner, uh, in the Old Testament scriptures, it was the anointed king, the Messiah, who was given the authority to build the temple to Samuel 7. And so as this accusation is brought before Jesus, as Jesus stands there remaining silent, the high priest's next question makes perfect sense. Now, he says to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you were the Messiah, the son of God. In other words, this claim, this charge has been brought for, before us. Uh, that You've been saying that you're going to destroy the temple. You're going to rebuild it. Who do you think you are? Only the Messiah has the authority to do that. So tell us now. I'm putting you under oath. Tell us, are you the Messiah, the son of God? And Jesus replies, you have said so. Now, what's going on there? Is that a yes? Is it a no? I mean, is Jesus just sidestepping this question? And some people have read this statement and they say, well, well, Jesus is sidestepping it. He doesn't give a clear answer. They see this as evidence that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. But that's not the case. It's just a misunderstanding of the way that the Gospels come to us and the way that we read it. See, the thing is, the Gospel writers didn't write down necessarily exactly the same words that were said. Because the Gospel came to us in ancient Greek. That was the language that you communicated in at that time. You wanted to write something. You wanted to share it around. You wrote in Greek. The language of the culture in Judea was Aramaic. So translations happening already. And like any good translator, like we have with translations in our Bible, when you are translating something for someone, you translate it in a way that the people you are writing to will understand. Now, And that explains a lot of why we see these small differences in the Gospels between words that are recorded. Because they're conveying the meaning of what was said, not necessarily literally a word for word translation. And that makes sense. It's what we do. And so in Mark's gospel, you get Jesus answering with a very clear and simple, I am. But here in Matthew, we get this slightly strange phrase, you have said so. So what's that mean? And Matthew's gospel, as we've seen as we've gone through it, now it, is very Jewish in its style. And there is evidence which demonstrates this phrase here, you have said so, it's an ancient Jewish expression. So for us, it seems a bit strange, a bit enigmatic to the first readers, it would make perfect sense. This is a phrase that doesn't need a translation, doesn't need an explanation, because the people understand what it means. And this phrase, then, you have said so, basically meant yes, but not in the way that you understand it. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is a phrase that means yes, but not in the way that you understand it. Again, much in the same way that we might do if a child says, Now, it, does that lady have a baby in her tummy? You might say, was that a no from Boaz? You might say, yes, but maybe not in the way that you understand it. Yes, she's pregnant, but it's not that she's eaten something like a seed of an apple uh, and instead of growing into a tree, it's only growing into a baby. And be careful what you eat because you might get pregnant. But you, you, you explain that, the yes, but not in the way that you understand it. And that's what this phrase is meaning here. And so the high priest says to Jesus, puts him under oath, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus says, yes, but not in the way that you understand it. what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? What are these misconceptions in the high priest in that culture's mind? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And a verse that we've been going back to in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. There at the beginning where we're told this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Now he's to be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins he's a Messiah who has not come to tear down religious buildings and to rebuild them. He has not come to dissolve parliament. He has come to save his people from their sins. He has come to deal with the depravity of our own hearts. And so Jesus' response here in verse 64, this is not him sidestepping the question. This is him defining the terms. And then Jesus goes on to say, I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And this is a quotation of two passages from the Old Testament, Psalm 110, Daniel 7. And we need to allow the context of those passages from the Old Testament to inform our interpretation. And what does Jesus mean by these words? And as we go back, as we consider what those passages are, we've not got time to look in them in great detail now, but you can do that later. Daniel 7, Psalm 110. Daniel 7, we see this figure described as the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and he's approaching this heavenly throne. And riding the clouds is this image that is associated with God. And so we have this Son of Man, this human figure, Riding on the clouds, we have this God-man, this divine Son of Man figure who is coming to receive all power and all authority, a rule and reign that will never end. And so when Jesus is talking about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, now we're not to be thinking this is a reference to Jesus' return to earth as though he's floating down on some sort of cloud. As Jesus is speaking here, he's speaking about a coronation ceremony, which is the same thing that Psalm 110 speaks about. This is about being crowned in power. and Both Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 have this image of this messianic figure who does away finally and completely with the rule and the reign of corruption. And instead what they bring in, what they usher in is new creation. And this new creation is portrayed to us with these illustrations of conquest and crowning. And this son of man who's going to sit on the throne, the throne of God, And reign with all power and all authority throughout all ages. It's a kingdom that will never pass away. And Jesus says to the high priest, This is who I am. So contrary to what the high priest may have originally thought, and Jesus' answer reveals I've not come to destroy a physical building and to rebuild a new temple. I am here as the divine redeemer. I'm building a new temple, but it's a new temple of people. I am building a new humanity. And all power and all authority, Jesus says, belongs to me. My reign is a reign that is never going to pass away. And he looks at the high priest. He looks at the Sanhedrin and he says, and from this time on now, this is what is happening. And Jesus declared to them, new creation is here and it is found in me. And to the high priest, to the Sanhedrin, this is the greatest of blasphemies. And so they tear their robes and they scream out blasphemy in his deserving of death. But for Peter, for us, as the depravity of our hearts is exposed, See, this becomes our greatest hope. And so as we hold on to that, you know, we are given that freedom to be able to look at this depravity that is exposed. So let's do that now as we look at Peter's trial. So verse 69, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. Remember, this is the same Peter who claimed he would never fall away from Jesus. And when Jesus said to Peter, look, you're going to disown me. You're going to say you don't even know me three times. And Peter vehemently said, no, I'm going to die with you. See, the same Peter now, in that moment of pressure, And when that water bottle is hit, what comes out? He denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And just hours ago, Peter was convinced of the strength of his own character. And now, bit by bit, moment by moment, he distances himself from Jesus. Now, both physically and also relationally. So in verse 69, he's sitting out in the courtyard. Now in verse 71, he goes out to the gateway. And there another servant girl spots him. And she comments to the people around, but this fellow was, was with Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 72, he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. And yet his vehement denials give the game away. Now, his distinctive Galilean accent is heard by those who are around. And so then, after a while, those who were standing there come up to Peter and they say, Well, no, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Now, it's not very clear necessarily who those curses are directed at it may well be that Peter is saying look may I be under a curse if I'm lying I don't know him there's a possibility here that Peter might even be cursing Jesus see to curse someone is to communicate in the strongest possible terms I have no loyalty to that person Now, either way, whether Peter's cursing himself, whether he's cursing Jesus, he is communicating in the strongest possible terms, I don't know him. I've got nothing to do with him. I have no loyalty to this Jesus guy, whoever it is that you're talking about. And immediately at that point, we're told the cock crows. Peter remembers Jesus's words. See, Jesus has already foretold all of this, it was Peter who'd been in denial. And then in that moment, as he sees what has come out, as he's reminded of these words of Jesus, he breaks down and he weeps bitterly. Having been so convinced that he is ready to die with Jesus and then boldly proclaiming, look, I don't know the man, leave me alone. And what was hidden from him has come out. It's spilt there on the ground as he considers it, he breaks down. Now perhaps you felt that weight. Now that weight of depravity being exposed and our depravity gets exposed in all manner of ways. Now, you may never have denied Jesus with your words and said, I, I don't know him. But what about with your actions? Well, the things we do where we say, well, I don't know him as Lord because I'm going to go my way. And in those moments when our, our depravity is exposed, Because we have this question, how can I fail to supremely love the one who is supremely lovely? Last week we considered the greatness of God's love and his goodness and his kindness towards us. And so what does it reveal then when we we fail to love him with our whole being, with all our heart, soul, mind and strength? When we fail to supremely love the one who is supremely lovely? lovely if we cannot do that it reveals the depravity of our own hearts as we considered earlier many times our response then is to try and try and hide from it to, to make excuses it's not me it's a situation this isn't what i'm really like Because to consider the depravity of our own hearts is painful. As we face up to our own sin, we face this question and we wonder at times, well, am I too far gone? If I couldn't stand, I was so convinced that I would be able to stand, that I'd be able to live for Christ. And as I see what is spilt out, is that it? Is there no hope for me? Am I too far gone? Am I past the point of redemption? But see the hope that is here in this passage. And maybe you've never felt it to that extent. I think Peter did. By verse 75, he is far away from Jesus. So he said both relationally, both physically. There's been this move from the courtyard to the gateway and by verse 75, he is outside. He is outside and he weeps bitterly. He weeps bitterly as he considers. Now he has denied Jesus in the strongest possible way. Do you get that sense of distance that Peter must feel at this point in time? How far away he must feel? Perhaps it's something that you can relate to. And yet this isn't how the story ends. It's not how the story ends for Peter. It's not how the story needs to end for us. It's not how the story needs to end for you. And we know that because Jesus has already said so in verse 32. And this is not how the story ends because of who Jesus is, the type of Messiah that he is. And as our depravity is exposed, the story doesn't end there because of the divinity that is revealed. As we go back to verse 64, Jesus said. I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. As Jesus said there and he declared, from this moment on, from now, is new creation. From this point of trial, because of this trial, that's going to lead to my death, to my resurrection, to my ascension, to the pouring out of the Spirit. From this moment on now is new creation, and this new creation is found in me. That was Jesus' declaration to the religious leaders. New creation is in me, and from now on you are going to see it, and they saw it. Because just weeks later, that same Peter, who cowered at the questions of a servant girl, stands before that very same Sanhedrin that condemns Jesus to death. And he boldly proclaims to them, that I'm a follower of Christ, that Jesus is Lord, that new creation is found in him, that you need to repent and turn from your sins and you need to be made new in him. And that same power that was at work to bring about that change and transformation in Peter is the same power that is at work and is available to change and transform your life now. Because Jesus Christ, the son of man, is raised, he is ascended, he is seated at the right hand of the power. All power and all authority belongs to him. And so, as our depravity is exposed, now we are then to look to the, the divinity of Christ that is revealed. And the end is, is not this despair. But it's one of dependence upon the immeasurable grace and power of God towards us in Christ. So let's pray. Now many years later, probably reflecting uh, on this incident, Peter wrote, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness, Father, we thank you for your great glory, Lord, for your goodness, Lord, your love towards us that we see in Jesus Christ, that in him is new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so as we prayed at the beginning, Lord, as you search our hearts, as you test us, as you know our anxious thoughts, as you see if there is any offensive way in us, Lord, we praise you that you are also the God who leads us in that way everlasting. Lord, lead us in the way everlasting according to your immeasurable grace and power towards us in Christ Jesus. Lord, as you expose the sin of our hearts, Lord, may we be quick not to despair, but to depend, to turn to you, to find the forgiveness, to find the transformation that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, will you continue this work that you have begun just as you have promised to make us more and more like Christ. Father, in accordance with your grace and your mighty power towards us in Christ, Lord, lead us in that way everlasting. Amen.